Matthew chapter 27. Everybody get a chance to read that this week? It was in the email to read that. If you didn't, I forgive you. I think it's helpful though, even as we were just singing these songs, see I've had all week to think about the message and, um, and so as I'm even singing the songs, I'm seeing this text in the songs and I, I'm seeing the message in the songs and I know all of you don't have that uh, opportunity, so we try to give you what I'll be preaching from and sometimes that changes last minute, but usually it's okay uh, so that you can read it in a, uh, in a, ahead of time and uh, give some thought to it. We don't have Sunday school anymore on Sunday morning, so maybe that little bit of extra time on a Sunday morning you could spend just reading it, preparing your hearts for the worship of God. The Puritans were big on that. They believed that the the beginning of uh, the preparation of our hearts is even the evening before, uh, doing things like going to bed at a proper time and uh, preparing yourself even for uh, what they called the marketplace of the soul, and the time we gather together and worship God and hear from Him and, and do that together. Let's read, beginning in verse 15 of chapter 27. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had that notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So that when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. 
And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the temple, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook. And the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the satyrian and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Let's now pause and ask God's blessing on this passage. Father, I come before you this morning as uh, the one to stand before the congregation and preach the cross of Christ and who knows that in and of of himself I am not worthy of this nor sufficient for it. So I pray now for your Spirit's help and gifting, uh, not for my sake only, but for the sake of your people here gathered. We are here because we believe in Jesus, and we believe that you were saving us from our sins through him in this chapter. And Spirit, we know you long to glorify the Son, and so we pray that you would do that now. Help us to comprehend the love of Christ for us displayed in Calvary. And we ask this in his precious name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says this, The word of the cross, or the message of the cross, is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Which is it to you? Is it foolishness 
because really largely to the culture at large, the message of the cross of Jesus is foolishness to this very day. It was then, it is now. To the Jews, it was a stumbling block. They were waiting for their Messiah, this they were expecting. But for him to go and be crucified, well, that was something they just could not accept. That, by the way, partly answers the question, why did Judas betray Jesus and why did Peter deny him? They denied him because he wasn't doing what they thought he should be doing. Peter wasn't afraid, I don't think, in the time that he was denying Christ. He was the same one that in the garden took out his, took out his sword and attacked a, uh, an armed guard coming to arrest Jesus. He was prepared to die for him, but as he sees Jesus turn himself over willingly to go to the cross, this is something he did not understand, did not expect, and could not accept. And so he denied Christ. There are many in our culture today that deny Christ and deny the cross work of Christ and that it had was anything special other than as one Jewish rabbi told me once, it was a uh, first century Jewish man being crucified by Romans and, and nothing more than that. But what is the cross to you? The message of the cross. Paul said in Romans chapter 1 verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He had to make that clear because his Jewish brethren thought it was uh, a stumbling block and the Gentiles he preached to often just responded with this, this is foolish. But Paul would say, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Is that you? What is the message of the cross to you? What was happening at the cross? I mean, we can read about the, this historical narrative and the things that were happening to Jesus. But I think that the Bible gives us more explanation than that. The Bible digs a little deeper than that. And last week we said that we need, when we read these passages, and remember, we're trying to become better readers of Matthew's gospel through this study. When we read these passages about the suffering of Christ, we need to read them personally. And by that we meant two things, if you'll recall, if you were here. Uh, the first is that we need to see that when Jesus was dying, he was dying for us. It's personal in that way. Very individual. And it was personal to Jesus. That's the second thing, remember? That Jesus knew the ones for whom he was dying. And he made that very clear in John chapter 10, verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Listen, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Catch that. In the same way that the Father and Son know each other, the Son knows those to whom the Father has given to him. They are his sheep. And he makes it very clear. I lay down my life. For the sheep. That's you, friends, and that's me. This was very personal to Jesus, and what we must do is personally apply it to ourselves. This is why Paul could so confidently say, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
In other words, when he was giving himself up on the cross, he knew me, says Paul, and he was actually giving himself up for me. Jesus knew you. He knew whom he came to save. There was no mystery in this. This is why Matthew kicks off the gospel. Matthew chapter 121, she will say, he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people, that particular group of people, from their sins. This will happen. That means, friends, this marvelously good news about the cross. It didn't just make your sin or your salvation possible. Many people read these texts and they say, here's what Jesus did. He did everything necessary to make salvation possible. And then he kind of goes to heaven and sits back and sees who's going to take him up on his offer. Friends, that's not at all how the New Testament presents the work of Christ on the cross. It didn't make salvation possible. It secured it. It guaranteed it. It made any other alternative, like you not being saved, an impossibility. I will save, or he will save his people from their sins. This will happen, and it happened through the cross. So when the cross happened, it guaranteed it. Your sins on that cross were atoned for. And it was only a matter of time in your life as you were going along in your life, doing whatever you were doing, that God at the right time called you through the gospel and called you into relationship with himself and you heard the call and you believed because you were one of his sheep. Don't attribute your salvation, friends, to your excellent reasoning skills and the fact that you can evaluate alternatives and make a great decision. Attribute your salvation and the fact that you're born again and the fact that you believe 100% to Jesus Christ and to God and His plan of grace for you specifically. This will make Matthew 26 and 27 come alive to you in new ways. This was personal, and we need to read it that way. But I think it's also important as we approach the Gospels, and specifically the suffering of Christ, to approach them theologically. And I've done that to some extent, but I want to dig in closer with that. You know what theology is? It's simply this. It is really the conclusions we draw about God and salvation, and everything the Bible teaches from the Bible. So when we start drawing conclusions about the cross, as an example, that's our theology. And there is theology in the cross that we need to see. It's answering questions like this. Why was Jesus suffering for me? Why was the cross necessary what was happening in the cross? What are the effects of the cross? And of course, we can't even come close to answering all those questions in one short message on a Sunday morning. And really, friends, this is the 
privilege of the Christian life and the Christian who has the possession of a Bible to search out the riches of Christ their entire life. Always discovering new things and elements uh, and angles of this marvelous message of the cross. This is the great privilege. But this morning I want to just hone in on a couple of things that are absolutely fundamental in your theology about the cross. And I use that word purposely. Because in the most healthy sense of the word, we're fundamentalists, right? We believe in the fundamentals of Scripture. And one of those fundamentals about the cross is what historically has just been referred to as the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Now He was there playing a penalty and he was doing so for us. Our substitute in our place, in our stead, on our behalf. And so let's talk about that for just a few minutes this morning. Let's begin by answering this question. Why was the suffering of Jesus necessary? Why was the atonement itself necessary? Why all of this uh, suffering that Jesus had to endure, why was it necessary? Or perhaps we should start with, was it necessary? Was there another way to do this? Was the cross one of the options that God had on the table And he said, now of all the options of how I could save people, let's just use this one. Is that the way it works? Look back at chapter 26. Graham brought us in detail through this passage just a couple of weeks ago in the Garden of Gethsemane. And look at verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, now listen to this, my father... If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So here is Jesus facing the prospect of the cross, and he understands it's going to be much more than physical suffering, doesn't he? It's going to be much more than physical suffering. He's being handed the cup of God's wrath, as Graham brought out from the prophets, due for our sin. He's about to drink it, and he understood this. It was going to culminate until on the cross, as we just read a few minutes ago, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the cup of God forsakenness and cursing that he had to drink. And so he's pleading with the Father, If there is any way, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, then of course it's a perfect prayer because it's Jesus. He says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then look at verse 42. Again, the second time, he went away to pray, Father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 44, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples, said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. In other words, the answer to his prayer, the first prayer was, If it's possible, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And the answer to his prayer from the Father came in between that verse and verse 39 in the end, didn't it? There is no other way. This, were the only, this was the only possible way for us to be saved. 
If his mission is to save his people from their sins, the Father's answer comes back loud and clear. There is no other way. It's not possible any other way. It must be the way of the cross. And friends, if that means, if the cross is the only way of salvation, that certainly eliminates any other way of salvation, right? Oh, the presumptuousness of even professing Christians who would try to assure those who have not come to saving faith in Christ that just because they're sincere or they're good people or they usually do what's right, certainly God's going to let them into heaven. And here we have this loud and clear pronouncement that there was absolutely no other way for my people to be saved other than through the sacrifice and suffering of my son. How presumptuous that sounds to say that there could be another way. Of course there's no other way. It was only through Jesus Christ. And that means, friends, it's only his work and his suffering, and his work, and what he went through, that is the only way you can be saved. Not yours. Oh, the presumption again of professing Christians who think somehow their work is contributing to this. Making their salvation possible. But it was only through the work of his son that salvation was possible. It must be through the way of the cross and through the way of suffering That would not be the way we would choose, I understand. That's never the way we choose for our lives, that's for sure. God let us map out the the course of our lives. Would any of them involve suffering to any degree? We would choose the pain-free, suffering way, smooth path into the kingdom, but that is not the way it works. Even for Christians in the New Testament, we find very clearly that suffering is part of God's plan even for us. Not an atoning suffering. Not for the forgiveness of our sins. That's already established. But to grow us in Christ-likeness. So that we experience suffering ourselves and God uses it to refine us, right? And to build us up and to grow us in Christ-likeness. The way of suffering is the way it goes. The path of the kingdom, the road of the kingdom is paved with suffering. But the good news is because of what Jesus did here, whatever suffering you encounter is not your forever suffering. This is not what you will experience forever and ever because of what Christ has done. But why was the cross so necessary? I think we've seen it was necessary. It was the only way, but why? Let me just answer that this way. And the Bible speaks to this from cover to cover, essentially. But it is sin, is it not? Sin that made the cross necessary. Sin ruined everything, and with sin came penalty. And that penalty must be paid. God warned Adam and Eve in the very beginning, the day you eat of this tree, in other words, the day you sin, rebel, break my commandment, you will die. God forsakenness will be the result of this. My righteous wrath will come from this. Death and everything it entails will ensue if you break God's law, which of course they did, and we're told very clearly that we are all, we all sinned in Adam, right? 
Sin carries a penalty. That penalty is death and God forsakenness. Uh, forsakenness. And what we see in Jesus is that he was paying that penalty. He was the one paying the penalty for our sins. This is why I believe that the cross was the way in which God chose to have his son killed for our sins. The cross was a public, shameful, torturous form of penalty to criminals. The people hanging on a a cross weren't just grabbed off the street at random by Roman soldiers because they didn't like the way they looked. These were non-Roman citizens who had broken the laws of the Roman Empire in very serious ways. And they were taken, and they were scourged and beaten, and they were stripped naked, and they were hung on a cross until they died. And it was purposely painful, it was purposely public and shameful so that everybody could see they're being punished for what they have done. Warning others, of course, to not do the same things they did and face the same fate. He was paying a penalty. That's the picture given in the form of death that God chose for his son. Sin carries a debt, a debt penalty that must be paid. And in order for God to forgive sinners, well, somebody had to pay that debt. Some will ask at this point, well, why? Why does God have to punish sin? I mean, isn't God loving? Can't he just, can't he just forgive? I remember doing some research for Islam when I was asked to give a mission, uh, speak at a missions conference uh, specifically for uh, dealing with Islam and things. And so I read from uh, an actual uh, Islamic teacher a book about it, and he referred to Allah as the all-forgiving one. Like Allah will forgive, of course it's based on you working for Allah and you doing good works as he defines and following the Quran and other things and then he has the ability to just forgive and he will forgive those who kind of work themselves into their, his forgiveness. And I remember thinking, that is such an unjust God they have. He is forgiving people upon no basis of forgiveness. That's injustice. That is as unjust as a as a a judge who lets a criminal off the hook who is clearly guilty and condemned just out of the kindness of the judge's heart or because he likes him or because he has a warm and fuzzy feeling. We would think that is unjust, would we not? If If you were the hurt family of a person who maybe really hurt someone in your family or you and you go to the sentencing and this criminal had been clearly condemned and was guilty and nobody could deny it and the judge says, I know he's guilty, I know the harm he's caused, I know the damage he's caused, but here's the deal, I'm just going to let him go because I'm just a good, loving guy. We would say that is injustice. We would cry foul. It is interesting that our culture right now is so interested in social justice. They're so interested in social justice. It's a buzzword. It's a, it's a hashtag. It's a t-shirt. It's a motto. Social justice. And yet, 
Ironically, they're the ones wanting convicted criminals to get free of prison on based on no penalty being paid. But a just judge must punish sin. God's righteousness is at stake here. The cross was absolutely necessary because God is a righteous judge and sin was against him and against his glory and against his honor and it evokes his righteous wrath and the penalty and that penalty must be paid. I remember I went once with a, a person I knew to uh, court with them. It was civil court and they were being sued for a certain sum of money that they owed some other people and I listened to it all and, and uh, at the end I, I asked to say something to the judge in my naivete and he said, yeah, go ahead, you know, and he swore me in, he was very kind to me and I basically said, you know, before you go make your judgment, just know that I know this person, they have no money to pay what these people are wanting. They don't have the funds. And he said to me, I appreciate that and appreciate your concern, but he said, you know, I'm bound by the law here. If the person owes the money, they have to pay it. I have to enforce that. And you know what? He was right. That's righteousness. That's justice. That's why the cross was absolutely necessary. The righteousness of God through his wrath had to be satisfied in Christ. Sin had to bear the penalty. It demanded it. And that's why it's such good news that we say that it wasn't just a penalty, the, the, the cross wasn't just a penalty, but it was substitutional. Do we know what that means? It means that when Christ was suffering, it was for us in our place, meaning you were the guilty party, condemned and owing the debt, and Christ was not. But he went there in your place, in your stead, and he was crucified for you. He was bearing, friends, the sin you deserved. And the best picture of this, I think in all of the Bible, is the account of Barabbas, is it not? I mean, if you look at verse 15 again, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So here's one who's guilty as charged, deserving of death, and everybody knows it. There was no question of his guilt or innocence. He had a reputation attached to his name, and he was finally getting his uh, just desserts, so to speak. He was getting what he deserved. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he's sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. She actually had a dream about his righteousness. That's how righteous Jesus was. And there was no question through any of this process, the innocence of Christ. Man, when the Jews wanted to turn Jesus over to the Romans, which they had to do because by Roman law, they couldn't crucify him and they dared not do it at that time, especially in, in Jerusalem and break the law with all the Romans that would have been there. So they, so, they, so they had to conjure up false witnesses, people who would come in and actually lie against Jesus Christ. 
Pilate himself knew, verse 23, why? What evil has he done? Why are we doing this? This man is innocent. This man is righteous. And yet, what is their cry? Crucify him. Release Barabbas. That's substitution. See, friends, because when you read that, in this story, you're Barabbas. You're not Jesus. You're not the innocent one suffering innocently. You're Barabbas. You deserved it. Everything that you see Jesus going through, you deserved. When he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You deserve to the core of your being, displayed in your actions through your whole life, you deserve God's wrath. I think this is one of the hardest concepts for 21st American uh, Christians, uh, 21st century American Christians to grasp. You deserve this. We cry foul against the cross. We, we think maybe this is unjust or whatever, but do you understand, friends, that you deserve this? We question a God who would create a hell and then people put, put people into it and we really wrestle with this. You're wrestling with that, friends, because you don't have a concept of your own sinfulness. And maybe it's because God in His grace shields from you the absolute depth of your total depravity. Because if we're honest and we fully felt the full weight of our sin in the presence of an absolutely holy and righteous God, we would do the same thing Isaiah did, right? In Isaiah 6, Woe is me, for I am undone. We would call down a curse upon ourselves. Our problem with the cross, our problem with suffering, our problem with hell, our problem with the wrath of God is that we don't get sin. And what you see in the cross of Jesus Christ is how God feels about sin. How serious He takes this. What an offense to Him sin is. So much so that He would crucify His Son for us. You deserved the punishment. Jesus was innocent he went to the cross for you, that substitutionary atonement. It's what Martin Luther called the great exchange. What a wonderful exchange this is. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see that exchange? You become the righteousness of God Jesus takes upon himself your sin. That's the gospel exchange that happens. Jesus knew no sin. It means more than he hadn't just committed sin. Of course he hadn't. His entire life was one of perfect and complete righteousness. Jesus knew no sin, but it also means this. He had no familiarity with its effects. Have you ever pondered that? As the perfectly righteous man, the incarnate Son of God, he knew nothing but God's blessing on his life, heart, and soul every moment of every day. He felt the benediction of God's blessing on him every day. And yet when he goes to the cross, he experiences God's forsakenness. He fulfills what the law clearly said, that everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. And he experiences that curse for you, friends, 
and for me, the one who knew no sin became sin, your sin. Individual sins and your very nature of sin, your rebellious heart, your obstinance, your pride, your lust, your anger, and that genuine disposition that every human being is born with, which is this hard-hearted fist in the face of God, I will do what I want. Jesus became that. Isn't that a beautiful picture for us and a thought? And shouldn't that, friends, listen to me, shouldn't that be our number one motivation each and every day to battle our personal sin? Shouldn't it be our number one motivation that Jesus had to pay for these sins, these foolish, sinful things I'm doing? He had to endure the curse and the wrath of God for this. Shouldn't that be our motivation? Perhaps this is what Jesus meant when he told his disciples. In John 14, he said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, I mean you genuinely, truly love me and delight in me, your sin will become ever increasingly distasteful to you because you will understand what I endured for that sin. You see? The love that we have for Jesus because of the cross of which he endured for us should be our motivator. He went to the cross in our place. Substitutionary atonement. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, helpless, lost were we. Blameless Lamb of God was he. Sacrificed to set us free. Hallelujah, what a Savior. This is the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And finally, friends, I'll leave us with this. It was sufficient. The cross of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus was sufficient to accomplish its purpose to save his people from their sins. And I think what we have here, as soon as Jesus died in verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. And have you ever wondered this? What happened immediately after that as Matthew records it? Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. You know that, that very heavy curtain they had in the temple that separated the, the holy place from the most holy place. And interestingly enough, and providentially enough, only one person could go in the most holy place and only that once a year on the Day of Atonement or we see Yom Kippur. He would go into the most holy place, the great high priest, into the very presence of God. Yeah, friends, what we see is as soon as Christ dies, that veil is torn open so that there is access now for all of Christ's people directly into the presence of God through his atoning sacrifice. It was sufficient for us. Nothing more needs to be done to open the way to God. Jesus said, I am the way to God. And when you come through me, you have direct access 
into the presence of the Father. My atonement. You say, well, I'm still so sinful. Yes, but the atonement was sufficient. The cross was sufficient. Your sins were paid for. You have forgiveness. And even more than that, you have the righteousness of Christ Himself. You have every... You have as much access to the presence of God as Jesus does. That's why we can approach Him with boldness and confidence for what He's done from us. And it says, verse 52, the tombs also were opened. I love this. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. From the death of Christ comes what? Life. This was a life-giving death. And here's the picture we see in it. People who are dead and in their tombs, as soon as Christ dies, they come alive. It's a picture both of our spiritual resurrection that we experience at a certain time when God calls us. Just as we read in Ephesians last week, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but what did God do? God made you alive in Christ. And it's a picture of the future resurrection. That great and glorious news when Jesus returns again will raise us from dead. We will become like Him and be with Him forever in resurrection glory. All of that flows to us. All of the gospel blessings that God bestows upon to, on us flow through the death of Christ. That's why if we were in the crowd that day and were presented the option, knowing what we know, presented the option, should we let Barabbas go? Or should I let Jesus go? Friends, you know what I think we would say with a very heavy heart? Let Barabbas go. Crucify him. Because I know what he's doing for me. Holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross he took my sin and by his death I live again. And that's what we're about to celebrate now and remember and proclaim in the Lord's table. The penalty paid in this substitutionary sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Let's pray. Father, now we want to ask as we go to the Lord's table that you would, just by your grace, through the operation of your Spirit, drive these principles home into our hearts, this truth of Jesus dying for us. May it be real to us. May it cause joy in our hearts. We ask this in his name. Amen.